All right, welcome back to the Young Turks, guys. So we have some great guests for you guys in this half hour as you're about to see. And then a new breaking news story, which is also shocking, ridiculous, is going to be in the post game. Members are gonna see that first. So we're gonna do a little bit of a personal story about what does a perfect day for me look like? That's just a fun story for giggles. But Trump with alligators and snakes, so that's in the post game, tyt.com slash join to become a member and get the last half hour of the Young Turks. But now, let me go to some of my great guests. Joining me in studio is Abby Martin and Mike Preisner. They did the movie Gaza Fights for Freedom. Yeah. Welcome, guys. How are you doing? Great, Jank. How are you? Thanks for having us. All right, good to have you guys back. Of course, Abby's been on the show a lot. Mike, good to see you again. And so, you guys decided to do a movie about Gaza. Okay, first, why? Sure, so Gaza, of course, is the largest open air prison, 2.2 million people living there, 75% refugees, half children. So you have to keep in mind this is a war against kids being bombed relentlessly and under a medieval siege, being deprived of water, electricity, just basic human rights of freedom, mobility, right to life, etc. So we, after the Great March of Return sparked off a year and a half ago, which Jenk, you know, is still going on every single Friday where Palestinians are going out there unarmed and still being sniped, mowed down by Israeli snipers. Um, we were so shocked and abhorred by the media coverage of this, kind of apologizing for Israel that uh, we, I Skyped in with a session with Gaza journalists and um, kind of the session arose out of, uh, basically it ended up me saying, hey, we should do a documentary about this um, after we directed all these interviews with the victims that were being shot. Um, and their families, we saw how epic this footage was, Jank. I mean, it's really mind-blowing cinematic stuff that makes you feel like you're in the middle of the protest. So we took a year off and we made this movie. So the movie's out now, it's called uh, Gaza Fights for Freedom. You can get it at GazaFightsForFreedom.com. I'm gonna show you a tra- uh, tra- uh, or at least a portion of it in, a, in just a second. But understand the context that Abby's referring to. Uh, we covered on the show uh, when it was happening. They would shoot doctors and they would shoot them from great distances, nowhere near the border. Uh, and medics and uh, protesters, etc. And the media would be like, well, you say tomato, I say tomato. I'm like, no, there's no tomato. That was a doctor that they shot from a great distance for no reason. And But it's not just about Israel, it's about state power must be protected by de facto state media. So that's why films like this are important to get you the real message of what's happening. So let's take a quick look here at a little portion of the movie and then we'll come back and talk about how it got done and what else is in the movie. أمام قوة كبيرة من الجيش اللي هي مدرعاتهم وأسلحتهم وغازهم وطائراتهم إحنا مسيرتنا سلمية بنطالب بحقنا من حق يكون أنا إلي بلد من حق يكون لي بيت من حق اللي متشردين في البلاء في كل مكان هذول النزعين يجعل بيوتهم So, uh, 
Powerful images, obviously. And Mike, how, how did you guys get those images? Uh, how were you able to obtain all this footage? Yeah, well, you know, actually, we were in the West Bank in 2017 doing reporting. We stayed in the West Bank for about a month reporting there, and we were trying to get into Gaza. Uh, the Israeli press office, despite us having all of the necessary press credentials, we're working for a legitimate press organization, they denied us entry into Gaza on the basis that we were uh, one, Iranian agents, uh, which we don't know where that came from, and uh, number two, that we were propagandists and not journalists. Again, despite having all the, the required press credentials. So we were really uh, troubled by the fact that we couldn't get into Gaza to report ourselves. And so as Abby mentioned, we connected with a larger organization of journalists in Gaza. And we hired a team of about uh, seven journalists there. And we started directing this through the blockade, right? Um, and I think something that speaks to that uh, that story that we had to do this, we couldn't go ourselves, we had to do this through this blockade, is that our co-producer in Gaza, incredible guy, we were on the phone with every day for a year, um, he had his name redacted from the movie because he was scared that if he had his name on the movie, that Israel would never let him leave Gaza, they would possibly retaliate against him in the country. And so that's how it came about. It was a true kind of collaboration between us and journalists who were there on the front lines. And they went out every single Friday uh, to capture these images, risk their lives to do so, um, so that people in, in this country could see what's really happening. Yeah, so let's note the irony of uh, any government, including Israel, saying, we only want the information we want out, <laughs> and we were right to shoot those medics from a distance, yeah. but you guys are doing propaganda. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. hilarious. Right. Uh, and, and then secondly, the woman in there, Abby, talked about, when are we gonna get our own country? Mm -hmm. And look at this, speaking of propaganda, so what do you hear in American media all the time? Oh, some random Palestinian says that Israel doesn't have a right to exist. Or sometimes an important Palestinian says Israel doesn't have a right to exist. Guess what, Israel exists. Does Palestine exist? No. How come you never hear in the media, hey, one side actually doesn't exist. The people exist, but the country doesn't. So talk to me about how disproportionate that is and how that affects the Palestinian psyche as you guys cover this. Sure, well, one thing that the film covers, not only is it um, uncovers this amazing archival footage and really digs into the history, but also it kind of deconstructs and demolishes that myth that Gaza is this monolithic entity reigned by this you know, rule of terror by Hamas. I mean, it's a diversity of political factions. There's a mosaic of, of entities of all different stripes, right? So Hamas is not the one, you know, like it's not, not all of Gazans are standing behind Hamas. And also we kind of look at what does Hamas actually say in regards to Israel? I mean, their, their charter today actually accepts a two-state solution under the 1967 borders and they reject anti-Semitism. If you look at the ruling coalition in Israel, it's the exact opposite, Jenk, as you know. I mean, Netanyahu's openly declared to annex the West Bank and, and he says there will be no Palestinian state. So it's kind of flipped around, right? Where, where the media just paints it as Palestine wants to destroy Israel, when really it's kind of the other way around. Right, well, look, it's not even the other way around. Palestine doesn't exist. <laughs> right, right. Like, we just have to establish that, <laughs> right. right? So, and, and of course, Netanyahu ran a racist campaign mm -hmm. and it wound up costing him, which is great. Uh, and uh, about Arab citizens of Israel, not just about the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and trying to delegitimize them as citizens of Israel, etc. And of course, Hamas has done uh, wrong things, terrible things, etc. But what that when Fox News and and the American government and every other part of the American media focuses on what Hamas does wrong, okay, fine. But it, what it leaves out is a giant part of the equation, which is what about state force? Mm -hmm. What about state power, right? And so when the state says, no, you cannot have a country, you cannot control your borders. And if you get anywhere near the borders, we will literally murder you, mm -hmm. right? 
And right. but that's not terrorism. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So who did they shoot mm -hmm. near the border in, in this time period? And and I know some people were going towards the border, but there's confusion as to how far they were from the border. Etc. So t talk to us about it. Go sure. ahead. Sure. Well, you know, uh, we we show the Israeli side in this film. We show the excuses that Israel's giving, and they they base all the people that they killed, which is over 200 people, unarmed protesters since the Great March started, 187 in uh, in 2018 alone. They have two justifications. One is that they are human shields, right? Well, human shield by the legal definition means someone's engaging troops with a gun and they're shoot, accidentally shooting them, trying to shoot them. There's been no guns at the demonstrations. There's been no one engaging Israeli troops with guns at the demonstrations. The other thing is that they're actively engaged in violence. Well, the only things you could construe as violence is throwing rocks at soldiers in like fortified bunkers, which of course pose no threat uh, to, the, to the Israeli soldiers there. But the UN report, the UN investigation into the deaths of 2018. So we're not basing this off of just witness testimony, but what the UN found is that the majority of people killed we're not even throwing rocks, we're not even breaking through the border fence, which of course is still a crime. You still can't shoot people for doing that, uh, and they did anyway. But the majority of people killed were doing things like smoking a cigarette, sitting on a hill, talking on a cell phone, filming a demonstration, uh, a hiding behind a bin, an 11-year-old child. These are people who were shot in the head by Israeli snipers. These weren't accidents, these weren't collateral damage. These were the people who were targeted doing things that weren't even, invo weren't even involved in protest activity, just simply at the demonstration. And so what we try to do is present a real indictment because uh, there's no accountability, right? You'd think any country uh, that was able to kill, you know, 200 unarmed people in this kind of slow, methodical, calculated way, that there'd be some kind of accountability. If you believe in international law, you have to believe that they have to be held accountable in some way, and they really haven't. And, and also, I think it's a misnomer to even call it a border. This is a partition militarized fence, basically blocking them from the lands that they were ethnically cleansed from decades ago, Jenk. And the main um, person who manifested the march, Ahmed Abu Artema, he's a 34-year-old poet. He basically says in his call to action when the march was, was created, he says, this is a symbolic action. No one is trying to actually storm the border fence. They are just trying to pitch tents to draw attention to the international community that they are still refugees 70 years later after the Nakba. And what Mike is talking about is very important because it's not just civilians who were sniped in the head or torso, which was actually the majority of, of deaths in these 200 deaths that we're talking about. It's also protected categories under the Geneva Conventions. Children, disabled, medics, and press. I mean, just imagine if it were the other way around. If Palestinians were hiding behind mounds of dirt and just sniping not only Israeli civilians, but press medics and, and children, children. And people would go absolutely ballistic. And so look, uh, you know when you need snipers? Uh, when you're shooting from a distance, yeah. that's when you need snipers. So let's just settle that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, it's it's you don't. Let's take it in the context of America. Imagine if in the civil rights movement, when they were doing civil disobedience and they were unarmed, and they were incredibly courageous, and they walked to places that the local authorities told them not to walk to. For mm -hmm. example, maybe a bridge in the middle of Selma, Alabama. Mm -hmm. If now we were all outraged and we passed the Civil Rights Act and we had a whole movement because they did a cavalry charge and they assaulted those poor people and they busted their heads open. But they didn't use snipers and they didn't execute them. Mm -hmm. And still this country moved, the entire country moved because of the moral outrage. Where is our collective moral outrage when instead of you know, using batons, they literally use snipers to execute 200 people in the middle of civil disobedience. Guys, how many times did we ask Palestinians, Palestinians do not do violence, do <laughs> yeah. not do terrorism, right, yep. instead do peaceful protests? Yeah, right. 
And here we are, and they kill him anyway. Well, that's what Ahmed said. He said he said they always ask us where the Palestinian Gandhis. He said there's been 200 of them, Jenk, and they've all been shot. So that is incredibly powerful. One last thing, because we're out of time, but if if in fact powerful propaganda forces funded you guys, <laughs> including Soros and the mullahs, how come you didn't raise enough money to get the film, you know, fully financed? So, what is the situation with your financing on the movie? Well, unfortunately, Trump's devastating sanctions on Venezuela shut down our ability to work with Telesur a year and a half ago. So we raised all of the funds over the last year and a half to make this film, Jank. As you know, this is a third rail issue. No one in corporate media really talks about this or dares to. And if they do, it's both sides in the issue and obfuscating the reality. So we just we just raised money from grassroots donations and we're still going on a tour across the country. We're going to Canada to try to mobilize efforts on the ground and really link um, and network together to really build this movement, not only against uh, Israeli apartheid, but against the US government and the US war machine, Jank, because we know that the US is subsidizing these atrocities with $10 million every single day. Right, so if you guys wanna help uh, in, in those costs of the movie, uh, which are not fully covered yet, uh, patreon.com slash empirefiles. If you wanna watch on demand, vimeo.com slash on demand slash Gaza fights, or simply gazafightsforfreedom.com. All right, Abby Martin and Mike Preisner, thank you so much for joining us, guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. All right, absolutely. All right, when we come back, I'm gonna talk to John Nichols, one of the leading writers of the nation. We have some agreements, but also some disagreements potentially about impeachment and Nancy Pelosi's strategy. Drums, when we come back. Back on a Young Turks, so I gotta tell you, man, after this next interview, we got a half an hour that's just for members and and you, but some of the stories are so important and breaking news that we are winding up sharing some of the news later on on some of the platforms, but you members are gonna get it first. This last one by Trump regarding what to do with immigrants at the border is Unbelievable, even by Trump standards, even by Trump standards. So that's coming up in a little bit. And then I'm gonna tell you some stories about my personal life too. That's just for the members. TYT.com slash join to become a member and get that. But now we got a great interview for you guys. Joining me now is John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. Let's talk about impeachment and Pelosi's strategy. John, welcome back to the show, it's been a while, brother. Too long, brother, it's good to be with you. All right, great to have you. So John, we agree with a lot of what you've written here, of course. But we might even have some slight disagreements. So hold up for that and that'll be fun. But first you claim impeachment is not hard. Okay, that's a fun claim. So why do you say that? It's not, if impeachment is kept clear, done quickly and done with a lot of education, it actually could be pretty easy, and that's how the founders intended it. The founders were exceptionally imperfect men. The only good thing about them, perhaps, or I should say better, the best thing about them, was that they understood those imperfections. And so they set up impeachment with an eye toward addressing a crisis when it occurred and doing so with relative speed. And so we shouldn't fetishize impeachment, we shouldn't imagine that impeachment is something that has to be tortured and difficult and overly complicated. It should be understood as the cure for a constitutional crisis. When you've got a problem, you address it. In this case, under our constitution, impeachment is what you do with a president like Donald Trump. 
So then let's dive in. Uh, how would you conduct impeachment? You said fast, I get that. Uh, but what are the implications of that? And uh, how do you think that the Democrats should proceed going forward on inquiries, hearings, court proceedings uh, in that what you have is a fairly narrow period of time uh, before they vote on impeachment? Sure. Uh, look, I'm not setting the timetable. I understand that it can vary and that things can happen along the way. Literally today, things are happening that are so monumental that, that they can affect things. But let's keep a basic concept here. Uh, there are dozens, perhaps hundreds of reasons why you might want to impeach Donald Trump. Uh, many of them are valid. Uh, we could go through all of them. We could spend the next you know, six, seven hours doing so. But there are a handful of issues that are clearly defined at this moment that are in the people's mind and that there's surprisingly strong agreement should be addressed. First, everything coming off this Ukrainian uh, imbroglio, for lack of a better term. Second, there's clearly an emoluments clause uh, argument. It, it's so well established. Congressman Steve Cohen from Tennessee, who chairs the Constitution Subcommittee on Judiciary, uh, said several weeks ago that you, know, you could just move right now on emoluments. And then I would argue there's a third very strong argument on cover-up. Uh, the evidence is there, it's clear. And frankly, you could put a lot of the efforts to slow impeachment down by the administration into a cover-up charge, uh, just keep piling them in there. Uh, how long does it take to investigate these? And frankly, to investigate whether anything else should be added? I think it's reasonable to say three or four weeks. Um, Congress isn't supposed to move at a snail's pace. Uh, I'm glad that Adam Schiff is, is not going on recess, that he is in fact gonna keep his committee going. I think other committees should as well. But it's reasonable to suggest that uh, the files, if you will, from the various committees could be f sent to judiciary by say November 1st, that uh, after a weekend at Jerry Nadler's house or whatever you wanna call it, uh, folks can sit down and, and put forward a group of articles of impeachment. They can debate them for a few days. They can have some hearings. Uh, the committee ought to vote and then it ought to send it to the full Congress for, for the full house, I should say, for a rich and robust debate that reasonably could be done by Thanksgiving. So John, I have a technical question here. So if, so for Nixon, for example, they did three articles of impeachment and, and obviously Nixon resigned before uh, he was actually impeached. But uh, those are the three grounds basically for his impeachment. Um, if, if they do similar actions here, let's say it's one, let's say it's three, it doesn't matter. Uh, can they add articles of impeachment later if they find out new material? So for example, a fact pattern there would be, hey, we did Ukraine, we did emoluments, let's call it two articles of impeachment on that. But uh, hey, his tax records came in afterwards and it turns out, oh my God, he has this, he's been money laundering for the Russians. We're gonna add that as an article of impeachment later, even though, I mean, that there's different layers of the process, right? They've already voted or it's already gone to the Senate. So how does that work? Well, that is a very good question. The Constitution mentions impeachment uh, you know, about six times. Uh, often it's a quick word here or there. So it doesn't really lay out a, a specific structure. It's not as strict as some people think. What that means is that Congress itself gets to decide. Could the House of Representatives vote two or three articles of impeachment and then forward an additional article? Yes. There's no question of that, they could. Would the Senate 
which might already be in a trial phase, accept that additional article as part of the trial that is in play, that would be up to the Senate. It would also be up to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court who presides over the proceedings. But here's the important thing, Jen. If an additional article was forwarded and the Senate decided not to take it up in in that moment, then it would be taken up immediately thereafter. Because once the House votes an article of impeachment, uh, no matter when it does, it ultimately has to be addressed by the Senate. That is something that is by all standards clearly defined and clearly accepted. So uh, the best answer to your question is that yes, they could put additional articles forward. And from a practical standpoint, there is a good chance that they might be added to a process if the process isn't already too far down the track. Right, and and even Mitch McConnell has said if the House uh, passes articles of impeachment, I must do a trial in the Senate. Uh, I think that that's constitutionally indisputable. Uh, but it's also politically relevant that McConnell is saying he will not fight it. Uh, I think that's an interesting sign because it doesn't matter how constitutionally uh, clear things are, McConnell will usually fight it. And, and in this case, he's not. So a bit of a sign there. Uh, so, but let's talk strategy here for a second, both political and legal. So what it's, I, I don't have an issue as much about the, the speed at which they do it. I hope they could do it very quickly. That would, of course, be ideal. I don't want it dragging out too long into the election cycle, and then that becomes a mess. By the way, it doesn't have to be a mess, but it could be. I understand that, right? But the upside of going broader rather than narrower is you get to lay out a case on all of these issues that he has done wrong. So the Democrats have never put forward the case on obstruction when there's an excellent case to be made. They've never put forward the case on campaign finance reform violations when his co-conspirator sits in prison right now. So the argument would be for going broader is, let's finally make the case against Donald Trump. It's a fair argument. And as long as the case is clear and and really understandable that, that the average person can say, yeah, that, that really ought to be in there, uh, then I have no problem with it. I'm not here to dictate a specific number. What I can tell you is this. We know enough about Donald Trump and we know enough about his inner circle, which I expect will soon you know, re-up folks like Steve Bannon and others to help in you know, what is the fight of his political life. Um, we know that they, they love to confuse, to uh, suggest that there is a you know so much going on, so many in their view conspiracies uh, that it's overwhelming. And so one wants to be a little cautious about giving them ammunition to say, "Oh, the Democrats are just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what will stick." I don't mind a number of articles of impeachment. In fact, I, I sympathize with the idea. It's just that each article that's put on must have its own integrity, its clarity. And if I can offer one historical tidbit here, as somebody who's written books on impeachment, uh, when Andrew Johnson was impeached, some of the strongest articles against him, some of the strongest arguments against him had to do with his efforts to divide the country. And amazingly enough, with his targeting of threats toward members of Congress who opposed him. And so 
you know, when we're talking about articles of impeachment, legitimate articles of impeachment, you could even talk about the things that the president has said, uh, the threatening things he has said, as regards uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and others. Yeah, see, uh, now, yeah, yeah. J- John, uh, there's plenty of room for reasonable people to disagree around the edges here. So that's why it's an interesting conversation. Because you're absolutely right about the historical standard for impeachment and what they did with Andrew Johnson, obviously. But I actually wouldn't go in that direction. I, I, yeah, I think that's too broad because people will say, "Oh well, now you're trying to impeach him for something political that he said. And I don't want this to be about politics. I want it to be Ukraine violated campaign finance laws. You cannot ask a foreign country for assistance in your political campaign. Clearly illegal, check. Same thing with the hush money payments. Michael Cohen gave him the money over the limit at $150,000, clearly illegal, co-conspirator in prison, check, right? And the obstruction of justice, clearly illegal, 10 counts of it in the Mueller report, check. And then I even have a monuments clause on the bubble, even though it's so overwhelmingly true, because it's unconstitutional as opposed to the other ones that are federal statutes that are so clear. And so, but I, okay, fine, emoluments closed, but I wouldn't go to anything political. So, I, what, what's, what's your take on that? Well, check out what just happened. You were suggesting to me a couple minutes ago, yeah, but we kind of got to go broader. We've got to put more of, of what we object to, or, you know, what we realize are this guy's real problems into, into this list of articles. And then I threw out one there, uh, which I think is legitimate, historic, but I would agree with you, uh, one that gets you into some difficult territory. And suddenly now you're saying to me, oh, yeah, but I don't want to go too broad. And so (laughs) that's right. What I would suggest is that you and I have just gotten there, right? We have gotten to the, the sweet spot, if you will. It is a place where we put ideas out, we explore possibilities. Uh, We recognize that we've got, let's say a few weeks, maybe a month in which to do that. And then send them to the Judiciary Committee, let very capable people like Jerry Nadler, Jamie Raskin, uh, Pramila Jayapal and others uh, work on these issues, work them over. These are smart, capable people. They are both legally skilled, constitutionally skilled also, but they're also folks who have political knowledge, who have political skills. Let them develop the set of articles uh, based off the wise advice of you know, TV hosts and guests uh, <laughs> and then put it forward. All right, well, that's why I love conversations like this. All right, everybody check out John at The Nation, uh, where he wrote this article, Pelosi announces the impeachment inquiry, now Congress has to get it right. But also check out his podcast, The Nation's podcast called Next Left. Uh, John, thanks so much for coming on The Young Turks, really appreciate it. It's an honor to be with you, my friend. All right, thank you, brother. Okay, now, (laughs) we're not anywhere done with today's programming. We got an extra half hour for members. Alligators and snakes, what did Trump want to do with them? Who did he want to shoot? Plus, later in the day at 6.30 Pacific, 9.30 Eastern, one of the stars of Curb Your Enthusiasm joins me and Ben for Old School. And members get to watch that live and they get to watch all of it. TYT.com slash join, you're gonna love it. We'll see you there.